So this week we are continuing with our untangling of the Hebrew Bible, also known to Christians as the Old Testament. Now, um, the story of Noah is in three fairly long chapters, so I'm not going to read them all to you. I'm going to give you the summary. And it's basically this, what the Bible says. And then, and then we'll talk about how to interpret that. God looked down one day and saw how horribly wicked the world is. And he wished he'd never even made man or beast. I don't know what the beast did wrong. And he decided he ought to destroy it. But there was one, one righteous man he found, Noah, one blameless. And so he talked to Noah and he said, I'm going to flood the earth, but I'm giving you a heads up so you can build an ark. It will be a large ship with one door and three levels, three decks, and it will be 300 by 50 by 30 cubits with a roof that is what has a one cubit fall. And I'm going to ask you to go on there with your three, with your wife and your three sons and their three wives. And Bring seven pairs of clean animals, seven pairs of birds, and one each of unclean animals, and bring all the food that they need. And in seven days, through that one door, he packed them in, and then it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and everything in the world was wiped out. Then after 150 days, that's three more months adrift, as the wind began to dry out the earth, he was grounded. Suddenly, the ark hit ground on the highest mountain around Mount Ararat. And he could see the tops of some other mountains. But still, it was another 27 days before he could see down the mountain that the lower ground was dried, was drying anyway. And God said, come out, come out of the ark. Spread your seed all over the earth and be fruitful. And then Noah built an altar to God. And he sacrificed the clean beasts and birds, a whole offering and God loved the smell of that, actually says that, and decided he would not curse earth or kill all beings again, no matter how bad man gets. And he set a rainbow in the sky as a covenant with man that every time there were clouds in the sky, rain on its way, that this rainbow would appear to remind him that they didn't have to worry about an eternal flood. Man, they tell that story to children. <laughs> so when we are interpreting the Bible, we have to know that there's a lot of, the, of course, there's historical um, references, but there's also a lot of symbolism. And to me, the most helpful way to use the Bible is to know that I am every character in it. I am every character in it. There's something for me to learn from every character. And I'm going to ask you a question right now. 
Have you ever been Noah? Where every single thing in your life is not working. Your job's not working. You've lost people you loved. Your relationships are terrible. The world, the very world around you seems to be falling apart. So that's Noah. Life was not working. And so Noah needed to start all over again. You ever just like, okay, you know, this is, I can't repair this house. <laughs> I just need to move to another one. Right? We need to start all over again. We need to let go of all of this stuff that is not working, that is clearly not working, that our own instincts tell us are not working, and that the proof of our life tell us is not working. And as the New Testament says, Jesus says, you, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because they'll burst. So you have to get a new wineskin for the new wine. Right? Any wickedness, just like um, Khalil Gibran so beautifully said, any evil is simply someone who doesn't know love and is hungering and thirsting for it. So Noah was maybe the righteous one, the self, the part that always knows, that always knows that somehow I'm going to be okay that somehow I'm determined to be good. Noah even tried to convince the neighbors to get on the boat with him, but they all just thought he was crazy. But this evil is simply the cycle of life when things are not working. It's addiction. It's co-addiction. It's relationships. It's dishonesty. It's debt. It's prison. It's every time we wish we never I wish I never got into this situation. I wish I was never born. I wish he was never born. Whenever we are in that situation, this is Noah. We are getting a clue that something in our life is not working. And so, do we clear out everything? Do we kill it all? No, we don't. We take seven pairs of clean beasts and one pair each of everything else. And to me, what this says is that there is good in everything and that God can use anything to make something good. Right? So this idea, these seven pairs of clean animals, those are the things you already know about yourself, you already like about yourself, the things in your life that, the few things in your life that seem to be working the skills that you have, the talents that you know about. And then all the other pairs are the wisdom that you don't even know yet that you've gained from going through the difficulties that you've gone through before. And when you take all of those with you, all of those experiences, so we forgive but we don't forget, right? We move on, but we can't wipe the slate clean because we're stuck here in this thing called a human body, which has a human mind, which doesn't tend to let go of things very well. That's why we sing that song every week, because we're trying to convince ourselves. So we do let go, but we don't completely let go. We remember. 
we remember and we find as we go through our lives that there were talents that we didn't even know about that we developed during these hard times. We had an elephant in our life. We didn't even know. We thought the elephant wasn't good, but suddenly we remember everything and we're like, oh, I'm an elephant. I can remember anything. Okay. Thank you, Perry. That was a joke. <laughs> so we keep those building blocks. We let go of the things that are not us, our false selves. And that's all the neighbors were. It's like all the, all the people that someone else has decided we should be, all the people that we are striving to be in order to please somebody, in order to fit in somewhere, in order to be worthy, right? We begin to let go of those things and to understand that our life is ours. This life is mine. Mine to do with what I can. And so I take the skills and the talents that I have and I use them. And as I do, I discover new skills and talents, new people, new relationships. So we keep those building blocks. We don't clear out everything. We keep the building blocks of a new life. And the sons and the wives are that offspring of the good, right? We don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, that's, that's my struggle with, um, always, with the Bible, is that I was taught it very well, according to one interpretation, which was not very pretty. And so I do go back to it because I need to heal from what I was told about it, from what I was told who I am because of it. Not worthy, wicked, definitely would have, been di would have died in the flood, right? So there is offspring of our good. We bring it with us. That's the sons and the wives, that every bit of good in us simply makes more good. That's what it does. And it's notable to say that there are pairs of opposites. There are all these pairs were male and female, male and female, male and female, Obviously, it takes a male and a female to create a new life at the level of life that we live. If you're an amoeba, it doesn't. Just split. <laughs> but it takes male and female at this level of life to create something new. And once again, that is symbolic of the feminine aspect of God and the masculine aspect of God. The feminine aspect is the intuitive, is the feeling is the receptive, the embracing. The masculine aspect of God is no less important. It is the doer. It is the ambitious. It is the thinker. Which is not to say that men think and women feel. That's not the point at all. But that all of us need our thinking and our feeling in order to create something new. Otherwise, we're just creating more of whatever. So the ark, what does the ark represent? Well, to me, that is simply Noah's ability to act on faith. No guarantee. He wasn't a boat builder. He didn't know how to build a boat. He just did it. How many times have you been in your life and thought, okay, I've got rid of all these things that didn't serve. 
because some preacher told me to. And here I am now with nothing. <laughs> Ever been there? So the ark is simply an act of faith. When you have nothing, you put one foot in front of the other. You look for direction. You look within for direction. You look to God for direction. You don't take a poll of everybody else and see what they think. That's the neighbors, right? If he'd listened to what the neighbors thought, he'd have gone down with the ship, right? So Noah acts on faith to make his life better, even though there is no evidence. And the way he does that is to withdraw from the world, get in a little tiny ship, leave everybody else behind, spend some time inside. I think it's beautiful that there's only one door. I mean, if you think of it logistically, that's just ridiculous. But one door, there's one way in. There's one way in, the heart. And yet there are three decks, there are three levels. And our level of understanding at a beastly level is this horrible stuff is happening to me and I don't know why. And then another level of understanding is maybe I have something to do with this. Maybe it's not just everybody doing it to me. Maybe I have some agency because I have choice. And then the higher level is I am living in choice, maybe not always making the right choices at every moment, but I am living with an awareness that I can always choose love if I want to. I always have that opportunity, the top deck. In other words, we have to withdraw and dig beneath the surface. And the surface, when we find ourselves in that place in our lives where nothing is working, our surface is, he did it, she did it, they did it just like Adam and Eve and the snake, his fault, her fault, it's to get down and say, it's not about fault, but what choices have I made that didn't lead me to where I want to be? And what choices can I make that might lead me to where I want to be? To go even deeper and explore the pain as Gibran so beautifully spoke about, the pain of reaching out, of searching in the dark caves, because we're hungry for something and we don't know what it is. So we have to explore that pain and understand, oh, we're hungry, that's what it is. And when we know we're hungry, then we can make a wiser choice about what we eat and where we look for it. Does that make sense? And then it rained. After he withdrew from the world, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Now you will notice, if you read much of the Bible, that that number 40 happens over and over and over and over again. And it is understood um, by scholars today, but also by storytellers back then, that 40 days means however long it takes. <laughs> so Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Israelites roamed in the desert for 40 years. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. However long it takes to let go of what's not serving you and start to build something new with what does serve you. However long it takes. No judgment. Doesn't matter. And also, this is just fascinating to me. This is kind of off the subject, but kind of on. If anybody is into numerology at all, which I'm not particularly, but it is so interesting to see how numbers 
figure in the Bible. And about the time that this was written down is, is about the time that people were discovering, mostly by looking at the stars, that there was a mathematical order to the universe, that there were physical laws that govern the universe and that they are actually mathematical and can be discovered and then extrapolated from mathematically. Pythagoras isn't just somebody who came to torture you in eighth or ninth grade, <laughs> right? He was more of a philosopher than a, than a mathematician. And so there's all these rich numbers. So they were adrift for 150 days and then again for 40 days. One plus five plus four is 10. That's another number, a round number, 10. Ten. What'd you say? Oh. <laughs> if you have something to share, Nancy, I want to hear. As long as it takes, because it hurts to let go of habits. It hurts to let go of ideas. It hurts to let go of situations that don't serve. And we can feel completely adrift until finally we find some solid ground to stand on. Even if it's not the ground we're going to eventually get to, there is some solid, solid ground. We're on the mountain. And then when we get to the mountain, we start sending out feelers. Noah sent out a dove and then a raven and then another dove. The dove came out, went out and came back almost right away. The raven went out and never came back. What does that mean? He sent the dove out again, and it came back with an olive branch. So he knew that the olive trees had grown again. <laughs> Once again, logistically impossible, and yet meaningful. The olive branch, the olive tree, was so necessary to the life of these desert-living people. It was their oil. It was their lamps, their light. It was their food. So the olive branch comes back, something to build a new life on. And so you hear about somebody sending out the olive branch. That's what this means. And then dry ground. Ooh, think of it. You're on the mountain. You're starting to realize. You're starting to build something new that might serve you better. And then what do you have to do? Can you live on the mountain your whole life? No, you got to bring it down to earth. All these ideas in our heads, we got to bring them down into our lives. We have to do something with them. We have to actually live life, not just withdraw to a mountain and sit there for the rest of our lives. So we're adrift until we find a place to land. We send out the feelers. We bring our knowledge down, head, body, 27 days again to dry out and then we spread over the earth and be fruitful. This means we start to plant the seeds of who we have become after withdrawing and reorganizing and realizing and making choices. Then we start to build new life from that place and we spread it over the world and we're fruitful. And sacrifice actually means to make something sacred. And so you don't actually have to kill anything to sacrifice. 
Although it's important to know that when you hear sacrifice, it sounds really scary. They sacrificed it to God, but they still ate it. You know, they didn't just slaughter something for the, for the fun of it. It was eaten. It was used. So we're starting to reap new fruit, and we sanctify it. We make it sacred with our gratitude. That's the only offering to God that God actually would want. We're God a person. <laughs> Is our gratitude. So why are we grateful? Because we need to convince God that we're worthy and we're thankful to God? No. Our gratitude feeds us. It makes us aware of our gifts. And any kind of ritual we do to mark the occasion of this new life, like the burning bowl that we do. Like coming here on the first day of the week and getting ourselves fueled up for the week to come. That is all sacrifice. That is all ritual that serves to make our lives more sacred. And it's not that our lives aren't sacred at every minute. It's just that we're not aware that our lives are sacred at every minute. And then this promise, this rainbow, this promise that it's really never going to be that bad. What does that mean? That you won't drift into a time in your life where your relationships go kaput and your job doesn't work and everything around you seems not to work? Well, you might, but you will come through it because now you know how. You know what you did to get you from there to here and when it starts to fall again, now you know what to do. Go inside. Take stock of what's going on. Look at what is fruitful in you, what your skills, what your talents, what your desires are. Because desires, Emily Cady says, the desires put, are put there by God. You wouldn't have a desire if it wasn't put there by God. Now we have to understand that a desire, we have to look at the depth of the desire because I want a Mercedes is a desire, but I want a Mercedes actually means I want a status symbol so I can feel like I'm important, perhaps. I don't know what it means to you, but that's perhaps what it means to someone. So it's not the desire for the thing, it's the desire behind the desire was put in you by God. You want more? I want more. Will things be the more that you want? Well, no, they, weren't. they are not going to be. You can keep trying it. But we all know of people who have billions, literally billions of things, and they want more. And so it's not the satisfaction you can get from the world. We all know people who have just what it takes to live. And not only are they satisfied with that, but they feel really good about life. So that's who we want to be. And this is a complex idea. When you treat something immaterial, like happiness or fear or evil as a material thing, it can be to make something more concrete and easier to understand. So think about that's the whole point of the arc. We're making it into a concrete thing instead of just saying, here's an idea, go within, and da-da-da, and it doesn't make as good a story as a story does. 
And the Hebrews, to whom this story was told over and over and over again, understood that they were telling stories. That's how they learned. Like fables, like parables, they were telling stories. And the common theme of this myth that is common with